as you know, Mrs. Faiza Hashemi went to visit uh, Mrs. Fariba Kamalabadi while she was out on furlough. Uh, what do you think has happened in Iran to have led to such a new quality of relationship between a Muslim woman and a Baha'i woman? Well, I must say, I think this lady, if I ever had the privilege of meeting her, it would truly be an honor because she strikes me as someone with enormous courage. And um, from what I've gathered, she is a person who takes up causes from a different variety of interests that she has. But one thing seems to be consistent, whatever the cause she happens to be following, and that is that she persists with it. She doesn't give up. She's got tremendous um, determination. And I think this is a, a real affirmation of the quality of, of, of courage of an individual but also representative, I think she is, representative of the courage of the women in Iran. Mm. And personally, I find that a real um, encouragement to see a woman coming out with that degree of determination. Now, to come back to the question of the courage to actually stand up and speak on behalf of the Baha'is, it's even more impressive to me. Um, I mean, I hope that there will be more and more Baha'is who will have that kind of courage. I hope we can, um, we can emulate the degree of courage that she has in one form, that people like Fariba and Mahfash in prison have in a very different form. Courage takes many different forms. Some of it is loud, some of it is quiet, but it's consistent in standing up for principle. And I think this is really remarkable in relation to a Muslim uh, standing up on behalf of a Baha'i. Um, because, admittedly, we have had a trauma in Iran that has marked all of us, that has left its scars on the Baha'i community and has also profoundly affected the Muslims in that country. To have a, the courage to confront that trauma, to me, is really Nazir because she really has faced up to what I've called in my private vocabulary, the Tabarsi syndrome. And what I mean by that is Tabarsi was the place where the Babis took refuge when they were attacked. As soon as you're attacked, you take a defensive mode. And I think we've reached a stage today where we cannot be defensive, either from the Baha'i side, nor from those Muslims that consider themselves devout and orthodox and religious. There's no need for that degree of defensiveness. We need to come out of the fortress. And so what I think she's doing is standing up in this way, is really taking a step out of the fortress, you know, many different types of fortress, the fortress of the veil, the fortress of where women have been put uh, by themselves, by the regime, by the orthodoxy. But most, most impressively to me is the fortress in the mind, that psychological fortress that creates a gap between the Baha'is and the people of Iran. And hopefully with that degree of courage, you know, we will see some inroads to a change, a change in the country, a change for the future.
When you say, I hope Baha'is have the same courage to act so courageously, what do you mean? What do you expect of Baha'is to do? Well, I don't think we haven't been courageous as Baha'is. Um, as I said, courage takes different forms. And I think in different periods of Baha'i history and in different stages of our development in Iran as a society, as a civil society, courage has to take on different shapes, different voices. Um, I think, for example, the idea we have implicit in the Baha'i in the Baha'i faith, the idea of evolution. It's implicit, embedded in our teachings. That doesn't mean we understand how to uh, put it into action. We don't always know how evolution as a principle should be implemented in our actions. But we do know that it is a principle that cannot be you know, avoided and has to be honored and respected. The, the principle of evolution, for example, in non-political involvement has shown a very interesting development over the last 150 years within the Baha'i community. Um, in the earliest years of the Baha'i faith, um, the Baha'is found themselves in these positions where they had to take defensive positions, as I said. We were told not to involve ourselves in politics. And this was very absolute. It was taken to such absolute uh, degrees in the very early years of the 20th century that some of the Baha'is did not even know that it was permissible, if you like to use the word, to stand up for other causes because we were afraid of being partisan. Now that concept of partisan involvement in politics is still very, very important in the Baha'i community because it's divisive. But now I think we have evolved and this is where our courage has to be shown through the guidance of the institution of the Universal House of Justice, we're beginning to understand that we must be involved in civil society. We have to express our faith in action in these ways, that the word politics in the largest and non-divisive sense is our responsibility. So in that sense, I feel we need that kind of courage as an example of how we can show our faith in action. And it's evolutionary in its progress. It's not something we could have done 50 years ago. So it's not like we did some dreadful mistake and now we have to overcome it. I think we have to see ourselves as Baha'is and see Iran as an evolving society where these concepts are becoming more and more obvious, where we're learning new forms of courage to express them. And I think that way we, um, how can I say, hopefully we can remove some of the antagonisms, the prejudices, the estrangement that has grown and developed um, between Muslims who think they understand something about the faith and the Baha'is who are afraid perhaps of being attacked or vilified or in some ways are misunderstood. Obviously, what Faizah did was extremely courageous, and courage uh, is something one learns. So uh, how should this courage be learned as a first step uh, to break taboos that cause so much discrimination? Well, I mean, you're asking me to come up with a instructional formula. <laughs> you know, I believe that one of the um, ways that we're evolving as, as, uh, as a society all over the world, this is 
This is not Iran, this is not within the Baha'i community, this is a universal phenomenon. We've had 6,000 years of um, a patriarchal uh, way of thinking where instruction comes from top down. Um, and I think we're, I think one of the things which is exciting about our times, and dangerous of course, because it, it opens us to, to vulnerabilities, is that we have to cease to look for uh, instruction on these matters and be, be inspired by what we know to be principles that we have faith in, that are profoundly important at a universal level. So we're searching for that truth within. And when I think about somebody like Boeze, Hoshimi Rafsanjani, if I was cynical, I could say, well, you know, she comes from a fairly protected background. She's, she's probably pretty sure that she's not going to get into trouble. So it's easy for her sort of thing to say that. But the majority of us don't have that kind of protection and we feel much more vulnerable. But deep down, even if she comes from a privileged background, she's never going to be driven to do this unless it comes from within. There's got to be something within. Otherwise, she doesn't have that push to keep going to the bitter end. And she clearly does have that kind of temperament. Now, that's obviously something maybe she was born with. Now, I do believe we can learn it, but I think we need encouragement. And I think when you ask me, how can we, it be done? One of the ways is by not having Janaba Bahi Nakhjavani giving me instructions about how it can be done. I can't say, you know, we have to learn those things from ourselves, from our lives, from our history, from our reading, from our thinking. This comes from within. And I think as long as we go on as a society waiting, either for somebody to be the model to tell us what to do, or some, you know, patriarch to give us permission for what to do, we will remain infantile and we won't evolve, we won't mature. So this is really a challenge. I mean, your question is very, very deep. It's psychologically deep. And um, I'm not sure I have even achieved that maturity myself. So I'm not able to really give instructions about it. I just have to go back and question myself with every step. How can I get more courage? How can I take a stand? How can I be sure of my principles here and not dupe myself, not cheat myself, not allow myself to be cheated? Make sure I've got more information so that I'm not being led by the nose. Do you think that this particular visit, and perhaps visits such as this, uh, could be the beginning of a new chapter that will ultimately, and, and actually hopefully, lead to a vision of a national reconciliation? Mm. Again, you're asking me to prophesy. Ah, <laughs> uh, what, we, what we've also, um, I think another, I don't know, I, I keep, coming back to Baha'i principles because uh, they're such um, interesting milestone ideas, you know. Um, it's not that I, I feel that it necessarily would mean anything to anybody else, but it's a, it's, a, it's a way of understanding phenomena that helps me clear my mind, you know. So, for example, this principle that we have in Baha'i teachings about, um, you know, the Bab called himself the primal point. Um, that point, the metaphor of the writing and the ink, the dot, everything came from that. 
you know, in the most exquisite calligraphy, it was stretched from that first drop. So that first meeting even with Mullah Hussain was the beginning of the whole story, you know. Um, I think every moment that we have in, the, in history could be seen as that kind of a beginning. And in, in a poetic way, metaphorically speaking, it's a hugely significant event. Um, if you look at it from a, you know, if symbolically, uh, it, it, it is absolutely an open door and a moment of significance. If you look at it sociologically, you know, from a more detached and objective point of view, you can say, well, this is the natural consequence of after maybe 35, 37 years of being in a theocratic system and, you know, events have changed. A new generation has been born. There has been a reform movement. There has been a change in the you know, presidential leadership. These are natural evolutions in, in that sense. You could, see, you could see it all very you know, skeptically as, as bound to have happened at some stage. Whether or not it's going to trickle down from these individuals and affect the mass, which is, I think, underneath your question, is it going to change radically the whole society? Again, I mean, I, I, look at, I look at the West, you know, there are so many events that have happened. It's taken many such individual, individual acts of courage before a fairly significant portion of the mass of population have the courage or even have the knowledge, because we're learning the facts have to penetrate. So it takes a long while for these things to actually come down to the grassroots. But I think things happen at both levels, you know. What I see, and I'm an outsider and totally ignorant, but I see an emergence among the young people because I have students that come from Iran and I have seen an, a younger generation coming out of Iran. And I'm just amazed by, their, by the difference uh, so I, I'm sure that there is a rising up of a new insight that is also responding to these individual examples of courage. And so how far that can meet, how many there are, I can't tell. But I just, I have a kind of faith that because I see that in the new generation, obviously it's going to have an impact. And the people in the middle, my age, <laughs> may find themselves marooned because we're too old to catch up with, with change. But, you know, change is inevitable. Whether we have enough of those examples or whether there is enough mass, it's just a time factor. I don't know whether I've answered your question, but I see all these elements being touched upon by your question. You mentioned young Iranians and their change of perspective. Uh, what we hear very frequently from non-Baha'is is that the younger generation has not heard about the Baha'i faith that much. So what is the responsibility of you as a Baha'i? How can you inform them about the Baha'i faith without intentionally wanting them to convert to the Baha'i faith? You know, I was thinking so much about this. I was thinking of um, just, we have a vocabulary in the Baha'i faith of, and this goes back to the Tabarsi syndrome, you know, we speak of defending the faith. And rightly, because it has been so often so bitterly attacked. But this whole concept of attack and defense is in itself confrontational. And I find myself going back and thinking about the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá, 
and the secret of divine civilization. And I realized there is a difference between uh, defense and explanation. Now you raise a very important point, which is that very often, in all good faith, the Baha'is may wish to explain if someone has shown interest. Now that, I'm assuming that we're starting from the, from the base of someone wanting to know about, okay? So if a Baha'i explains, then there is this critical uh, uh, interface between explanation and attempting to convert. And Baha'is are very often accused of attempting to convert when in fact they are simply explaining. But they themselves, in their desire to explain, are trying to be so persuasive that their persuasion is perceived as conversion attempts. This is in itself due, I believe, going back to this old trauma. Because in Shia Islam, when, you, when you're waiting for the promised Qa'em to come, <laughs> your idea, you have to accept him. So those early Babis, when they accepted the Bab, they were gung-ho, you know, but you must hear about it, you must accept, okay? It's only evolution, gradually, with the guidance and the teachings of Baha'u'llah and then Atubah, we began to understand that you don't speak to someone unless he's, he's interested in listening, and you don't provide the food in, until he shows hunger. But going back to, even to the the writings of the Bab, you see so much, do not coerce, you know, do not coerce. So I think underlying your, your question is the, 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 the dilemma that we face as Baha'is. How do we provide information in a world which is dominated by publicity, media, advertising, where everything is trying to persuade us to buy, to think this way, propaganda, you know, be a, be a, taken by the nose in whichever direction, politically or, or commercially. We're living in a world where all communication is attempting to persuade us to believe or to think in a certain way. And we're providing information about the Baha'i faith, and we cannot be seen as coercive or conversion-oriented, or, you know, it's a huge dilemma. I don't think it's an easy, easy solution that we have there. We have to somehow or other find ourselves desire, you know, people must desire the information enough and we have to have enough confidence to be able to provide the facts in a totally detached way. I think the reason we have failed sometimes, and it's not due to the instructions of the institutions, it's because of our own lack of wisdom as Baha'is. We get so carried away by somebody's interest in finding out more about the faith that we end up sounding as if we want to convert and we lose sight of that detachment which is the gift to the king the gift to the king is the metaphor used by abdul baha that that's the way you have to you know offer the information of the faith a gift to the king we are respectful of it but we don't expect the other person to be respectful that's that's up to him and it's not an easy thing to do not an easy thing uh, you mentioned the role of individuals and that which comes from above. Uh, however, those who are not Baha'is have a belief that Baha'is take action only when it is approved by their leaders, meaning the Universal House of Justice. So, in other words, when it comes to different problems of the world, Baha'is don't act 
spontaneously and they take action only when they receive guidance to do so. This goes back to the fact that we've had to be defensive and because whatever we say as individuals, we know in theory, because again, we are evolving in our understanding of this, that it has no authority. We know that because it's a bi-principle. And individuals, me speaking like this, I have absolutely no authority. And what I say is my opinion. But someone listening to me, who is not necessarily aware of this concept, may assume that I have authority and that therefore what I say can be quoted with that degree of power and force that therefore this Baha'i Fulani says such and such. Now when that happens and it can be used to uh, vilify the faith and attack the faith, then obviously we're being guided, don't do that. You know, I can totally understand the logic that has led to this situation. But I think we need to ourselves understand that this principle that authority rests in institutions, not in individuals, which is a profoundly Baha'i idea and extremely new, very innovative, and we can't assume everybody understands it. Certainly many Baha'is don't. Many Baha'is haven't grasped its full implications. But this idea liberates us as individuals. Then we can be responsive if we realize how little authority we have. None at all. So we, we are free to speak. But if we are speaking to, a, to an audience who assumes now that they can manipulate and distort, which is what is happening in the press all the time, then obviously we have to use some discretion, we have to use wisdom. And where do we get the authoritative guidance? You know, if somebody doesn't understand why we're going to the institutions, we have to explain. It's because I can talk off the top of my head, but you're not allowed to use that as an authoritative statement. If you want an authoritative statement, let me first double check with the authority, then I can give you an authoritative statement. If you're, you know, it's a bargain here. You're willing to understand where I'm coming from, I'll be responsive. But if you're not going to take me for what I am, which is zero, having absolutely no right to speak of anything except from my personal point of view, then I have to be careful, you see? I think, I think we have to be frank about this. We have to, that's part of our explanation of what the faith is, is to explain this whole question of where authority comes. But I think, you know, underneath your question is another one, which I'm fascinated by, because um, one of the problems with, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm assuming things, but I think our, um, the, the, the attitude of suspicion towards Baha'i institutions that may be coming from people who don't know very much about the faith or know just enough to have labeled us as, you know, um, yes men or, <laughs> you know, kowtowing to a, an institution where there are no women represented as if that were somehow the, the criteria. Um, th this comes from a deep-seated fear, uh, and, a, and rightly so, of what I think has happened over thousands of years in religion, in nationalism, in, in, in racism, it's what I call the supremacy fallacy. That there is this one right way of doing things, and we have it, and we are the first, we are the last, we are the absolute, we are the superior. And as I say, it's not just religious. It is, it's been a national uh, folly, it's been a, a cultural and race, racial folly. We have this embedded in us, that, our point of view is the best one. And deep ingrained in the Baha'i teachings, if anybody cares to scratch the surface a bit, 
you see that this supremacy fallacy is null and void. It doesn't exist. We as individuals bring all our baggage with us, our background with us, our human frailties with us, and we reflect that sometimes. We act as if we got the truth, the absolute truth. But this supremacy fallacy is over and done with in the Baha'i teachings. The relativity of truth, the need for consultation in coming to a decision, all these and many other aspects of the faith indicate that the supremacy fallacy doesn't exist anymore. So, I mean, that's part of our, if you like, explanation without trying to be coercive, without trying to be conversion oriented. It's an attempt to explain why we have to look at these institutions not as embodiments of a supremacy fallacy in the old world, that they are guidance for us on a consultative basis that is helping us understand where we can be free of our own notion of we are right, you know, we are the ego right. And that, that's, that's one of the ways I see liberation in this system of, of the administrative order of the Baha'i faith. Do you see any difference between what Faiza Hashemi did and what, for instance, Nasrin Sotudeh did, or for that matter, what many other Iranians have done to initiate a friendly relationship with Baha'is? Why is that such a big deal now? Uh, what is the difference between Faiza Hashemi and Nasrin Sotudeh? I think the fundamental obvious difference is she comes from a, from a family of clerics, doesn't she? I mean, her associations with the... Uh, with the, with the ruling theocracy power of our, of our country uh, is an indication of why it suddenly hit the headlines. Um, she wears a veil and she is part of a, an orthodox style family, you know? So she symbolizes something tremendous. Nasrin Sotudeh has been recognized by Western countries and governments and given the, the Sokolov Prize, you know, by the European Union, for example, and could be seen by the, by the rank and file of the Iranians as, oh, well, you know, she's a human rights person and influenced by the West and so forth. I mean, Bazet somehow has managed, in spite of her extraordinary ability to stand out and do things, you know, courageously in different areas, she still is part of that family which is associated with um, the, 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 the clergy uh, in power in Iran. I think that's the reason it's, it's sort of shocked everybody or hit the headlines. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but that's why I think. And therefore, the, the target, in a way, is a questioning of that, of the ruling party. It's, uh, it seems to me that that is what is coming out here. Perhaps I'm wrong, but as an outsider, that's how I see it.